Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, working to support students, educators, and public schools as the center of their communities with Public Schools Unite Us initiative and United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. New York U.S. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand is calling on the Environmental Protection Agency to readdress the cleanup of PCBs from the Hudson River. The Legislative Gazette's Samantha Simmons reports. The New York Democrat wrote to EPA Administrator Michael Regan ahead of the agency's release of its third five-year review of the Hudson River PCBs Superfund site. Gillibrand says efforts to remove the chemical have been inadequate. Between 1947 and 1977, General Electric discharged more than a million pounds of PCBs into the river, causing contamination to water, soil, and wildlife. PCBs are known to cause skin conditions like rashes and acne, gastrointestinal discomfort, and fatigue. Under an agreement with the EPA, GE wrapped up dredging of contaminated sediment in a 40-mile stretch of the Upper Hudson in 2015. Speaking in Albany Thursday, Gillibrand says it fell short in restoring the waterway. The commercial fishing industry in the area, which once generated $40 million annually, has been shut down. And the communities that depend on the Hudson River for drinking water have been forced to spend millions of dollars a year to make the water safe to drink. In a statement, GE says the EPA hailed its Hudson River dredging project as a historic achievement. The company added that 99% of sediment samples in the Upper Hudson show PCB levels below EPA's dredging criteria, and the project is on track to deliver further improvements, reducing other levels. Joined by state and local officials and advocates, Gillibrand says New Yorkers continue to suffer from the elevated levels of PCBs. She says while cleanup efforts removed a significant amount of contamination, the EPA's cleanup goals have not yet been met. Gillibrand is calling on the agency to recognize that dredging doesn't protect human health or the environment. Additional remedial action must be taken to bring the Hudson River back to its full health. Scenic Hudson President Ned Sullivan says the failure to adequately remedy one of the country's largest Superfund sites hurts the economy, industry, and livelihoods. This is a problem for anyone living along the Hudson, from New York City all the way up to the Upper, upper Hudson, but particularly for our uh, most vulnerable people, the people of color, people in lower economic uh, standing, who actually, many of whom actually depend on the Hudson River fish and subsist on it. Sullivan adds the EPA underestimated the amount of PCBs in the river. Sullivan says a 2023 study by the Friends of a Clean Hudson shows increasing levels of contamination. The levels of PCBs in fish, they made an initial drop after the cleanup, but then they've leveled off and are even showing a slight increase. Assemblymember Pat Fahey of the 109th District, who is running for state Senate, says additional remedial actions would support her vision to reimagine Interstate 787 and reconnect the community with the Hudson River. In addition to healing the Hudson, we absolutely need to reconnect to it. And that's why we have spent years seeking the funding to do the feasibility study on uh, reimagining it, 
reconnecting with it, and as a part of that study, it includes the canal to help unearth the original uh, lock one of the Erie Canal. So it is a multi-pronged approach. The Democrat says she expects an I-787 feasibility study to be finished this year. Advocates calling for further river cleanup efforts say corporations like GE have skirted responsibility, shifting the burden to individuals. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Samantha Simmons. You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. This week, I sat down with pollster Steve Greenberg from the Siena College Research Institute, home of the well-known Siena Poll. I began by asking Steve what the poll found out about what issues are of top concern for New Yorkers. Well, what we've learned is that 29% of New Yorkers say the cost of living in this state is the single top most important issue they want Governor Hochul and the legislature to work on in Albany. If we then ask voters, if it's not your first choice, what's your second choice? Combine those two and nearly half of New Yorkers, 49%, say the cost of living is their top issue. Second place, migrants. Overall, 39% said it's one of their top two issues. Nearly a quarter, 23% say it's the top issue. Crime came in third, 15% say it's their top issue. One third, 33% say it's one of their top two issues. Housing, 29%. So a little bit less between a quarter and a third say it's one of their top two issues. And then coming in lower were health. 24% say it's one of their top two issues. The environment, only 10% say it's one of their top two issues. And flight out of New York, New Yorkers leaving for other states, again, 10% say it's one of their top two issues. There is a difference between the parties, but not as wide on this question as you might see in some of our other questions. So, for example, Democrats' top three issues are the cost of living, housing, and migrants. For Republicans, it's migrants, cost of living, and crime. And for independents, it's cost of living, migrants, and crime. So all three, Democrat, Republican, and independents, have migrants and cost of living. Then Republicans and independents have crime and Democrats have housing. Steve Greenberg, of course, we know with each of these issues, you can ask, well, how so? So, for example, cost of living, do they give you examples? The cost of groceries? Is it gas? Do we have the underpinnings of why they say that in these polls? No, not really. I mean, we have asked those kinds of questions before, not in this month's survey. We did ask about crime, which we've been asking a lot about over the last several years. Interestingly, a majority, 56%, say crime in this state has gotten worse over the last year. Now, crime statistics don't necessarily indicate that, Uh but this is a question of how people feel. Only 12% of New Yorkers say crime in New York has gotten better in the last year. About a third, 31%, say it stayed about the same. But as I say, a majority, 56%, say it has gotten worse. 
So my question would be, people get their information from media, whether it's social media or mainstream media or right-wing media, they get their information from media. So how much of this polling tracks what the media is covering? If I look at cost of living, migrants, crime and housing, those have been big stories, not only in commercial radio, but even in public radio. So people are hearing about these issues as problems all the time. Absolutely. Look, a poll is nothing more than a snapshot in time. So in the middle of February 2024, these are the issues that are top of mind for voters across New York right now. It could be because of what their particular media or their source of information, but it could also be their personal experiences. Certainly when we talk about cost of living, people can watch CNBC and see the stock market ticker and see all the the talking heads talking about the economy and business and Wall Street, et cetera. But people make their decisions about how they feel about the economy and how they're doing economically when they go to fill up the gas tank, when they go to the supermarket to buy food for the family. So people bring their experiences and everybody has different experiences. They interact with different people. They follow different social media or traditional media sources. Absolutely. We're speaking with pollster Steve Greenberg from the Siena Poll. Very interesting conversation so far. So the real issue is when you look at the crosstabs. So when you go and you look at how the poll breaks down, you do it by party, gender, ideology, union, age, age, region, ethnicity, age, religion, and income. So that is a real breakdown. It does help you understand why people in these groups are in some ways polling the way they are. Absolutely. Look, not all Democrats feel the same, but Democrats tend to feel one way. Republicans tend to feel on some issues the same way, but on many issues, a completely different way. Uh, We often see independents fall between the two. Certainly upstaters and downstaters feel differently on some issues. They feel similarly on many issues as well. But yes, there are differences And when we do this kind of polling, it enables us to share with the public not just how the whole of New York voters feel, but segments of them. That's pollster Steve Greenberg from the Siena College Research Institute, home of the Siena Poll. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. Top state and federal officials gathered this week at Global Foundries in Malta to celebrate $1.5 billion in federal funding. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas was there and filed this report. Global Foundries officials say the cash infusion from the federal government will expand production of computer chips at the Fab 8 plant allow for a second fab on the Saratoga County campus, and modernize the firm's facility in Essex Junction, Vermont. 
Global Foundries also announced more than $600 million in funding and incentives from New York State. The company plans to invest more than $12 billion over the next decade across its two U.S. sites. Global Foundries says the combined investments are expected to create over 1,500 manufacturing jobs and 9,000 construction jobs. The agreement with the U.S. Department of Commerce falls under the Chips and Science Act, which was spearheaded by Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The New York Democrat says the country has to manufacture its own chips. In the growing conflicts with the Russia and particularly with the China, one of the reasons they threaten Taiwan is because Taiwan is where so many of the chips are made and China's where so many of the chips are made. If they could cut that off, they could cause a recession in America immediately. We cannot let that happen. And that's what we're doing here today. So this has implications, not just for the capital region, which are so great, but for all of the United States of America. New York Governor Kathy Hochul agrees. You heard the story of our dependency on these chips that most people didn't even know what they were just a few short years ago. The dependency that came to light during the pandemic. And how do we know that here in the state of New York? Because when we couldn't get those chips from overseas, literally shut down manufacturing of cars in our own state. We felt this profoundly and we said never again, never again can we be so dependent on foreign supply chains and all the uncertainty around geopolitical circumstances that we have no control over. We can't let our economy come down to that. State Assembly member Carrie Werner of the 113th District says the funding announcement creates a real sense of optimism. I spend a lot of time talking to our young people uh, and the, the, this clean technology and sustainability high school, early college high school program that's run out of Hudson Valley Community College. So many of the young people who are in that high school and early college program get internships and mentorship with Global Foundries. And they go on to have a career in advanced manufacturing. That's what we're trying to build, is an industry that will, that will sustain the next generations. White House Coordinator for CHIPS Implementation Ryan Harper notes the Malta facility is focused on the auto industry and enjoys a partnership with General Motors. The funding allows the U.S. to restore technology that currently sits overseas. The Vermont facility in particular is a revitalization of an existing facility in, Vermont, in Burlington, Vermont, um, and it will both commercialize some new technologies that were in development. It will create uh, the first U.S. capability capable of high-volume manufacturing of some next-generation materials, gallium nitride. Um, these are the kind of chips that will be used in electric vehicles, the power grid, smartphones. Harper says next on the timetable is a due diligence phase involving the U.S. Department of Commerce where they dot I's, cross T's, and make sure that the plan is laid out in robust detail. Um, as part of that, Commerce uh, identifies provisions that protect U.S. taxpayers uh, and ensures the company will hit milestones, and the funds will be distributed on a milestone basis moving forward. So over the length of the project, over the next five to ten years, um, that money will be distributed in time. But I think the impacts will be seen uh, starting, you know, uh, in, in months and, and uh, in, over the next year. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas. In 2020, New York State created a task force to study the impacts of winter salt application on roads and the Adirondacks and make recommendations for best practices. Its report was issued last September. 
a panel discussion was held in Tupper Lake last week to discuss potential steps toward its implementation. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley with more. The report from the task force, as required by the Randy Preston Road Salt Reduction Act, included salt reduction recommendations and possible management practices, but no implementation plan or methodology. Researchers, advocates, and state agency representatives recently met in Tupper Lake to discuss what has been happening since the report was issued. Department of Environmental Conservation Division of Water Assistant Director A.J. Smith noted that an analysis of four years of water quality data has found chloride increasing and negatively impacting the sensitive ecosystems of the Adirondack Park. We've identified a major issue, an increasing trend in the concentration of chloride statewide, including in the Adirondacks, and it's something that we need to start to identify the various sources, including road salt. There may be some other sources, and I think the road salt task force was a major component of the solution. And then the second piece were things like the need for funding. Municipalities that have you know, their operations applying road salt need funding to be able to handle the best management practices that we are recommending in the task force. And that funding needs to be widely accessible. It's something that we're starting to look at to try and make that funding available to pay for best management practice implementation. Road salt reduction is a priority issue for ADK Action. Executive Director Sawyer Bailey says a long-term statewide reduction strategy is necessary. We need to create some sort of supportive body for accountability to create the roadmap for implementation. So in order to keep building on progress, we need agencies to come together and experts from across the state to come together to say what's the game plan going to be for the rubber meeting the road on this work. Apart from that, New York is one of the only states in the Northeast that doesn't have a chloride threshold. So let's think, where do we start with that? And then from there, we need to be thinking about implementation. We're so thrilled to see the state making progress on the pilots. That feels like the most important thing to continue. But how do we begin charting a course for implementation on all the other great recommendations in the report? And then how do we scale that by 2030 to the whole rest of New York State? And then finally, how are we going to pay for it? Lake George officials have been assessing the use of road salt with a reduction pilot on Route 9N. A study on the first four years of that pilot was just released, according to waterkeeper Chris Nowitzki. He says both reports point to several initiatives that should be implemented beyond the current pilot projects. I am hoping that we can start hosting uh, the strategic working groups that we used to have. We had Adirondack Road Salt Working Group with DOT, with DEC, with elected officials, with the not-for-profits. I think we need to reinitiate those. The public reach out, I think, is very important. And um, as Sawyer said, the funding is going to be big. We are now into budget season, and we need to raise these issues up. Hamilton County Superintendent of Public Works Tracy Eldridge says any reduction in the use of road salt has to consider public expectations. This really is a, a societal problem that we started 40 years ago that we expect we're going to travel 65 miles an hour no matter what. We can't have that expectation anymore. And we had an accident on one of our county roads this winter van went through a turn, 
we were plowing and went through the turn, broadsided our truck. And the driver of the vehicle said, boy, it's slippery out here. <laughs> really? That's the kind of attitude. Slow down. Our main charge is to provide a reasonably safe road for the reasonably safe driver. I don't like using salt on the roads. I see what it does to our equipment, our bridges, our roads. I see that. But not everybody does. You can watch the complete forum, Hold the Salt, Plans for Protecting Adirondack Waters, at WAMC.org. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. We take you to Gloversville now, where officials there are hoping that a suite of state-funded projects will reinvigorate the Fulton County City's downtown. The Legislative Gazette's Aaron Shella Levine reports. After being awarded $10 million through New York State's Downtown Revitalization Initiative Program in 2021, Gloversville is closing in on a new era. Twelve grant-funded projects range in scope from a $350,000 renovation of the Shine Memorial Hall to the construction of a $1.1 million green space pavilion in the otherwise desolate St. Thomas Square. Gloversville Downtown Development Specialist Jennifer Donovan says all of the projects work in tandem. Imagine being a nice young artist moving into Glove City Lofts here. You're going to walk about a block and a half up to the Shine Building where you could do your work in the co-artist space. And then downstairs, of course, there's some restaurants that are going in from the DRI. And as an artist, what does that mean? It could be visual, it could be performance. So there's the Glove Theater right there, so another place you could work or you could showcase your stuff in the already current art exhibit there. And in your off hours, you can come to the park for some nice entertainment by the musician of the artist. On a tour of the city's DRI projects, Democratic Mayor Vincent DeSantis is quick to highlight that most of the city will remain visually the same. Now we, we still have the old historic infrastructure still here unspoiled and to have the the opportunity to redevelop the community and to 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 renew everything and to make it into a 21st century community is is a tremendous tremendous uh, gift that we have. Like many upstate New York cities, Gloversville faced significant blight following the decline of industry and related population loss in the 20th century. Speaking in a co-op food market and art space, DeSantis highlights how the injection of millions of state dollars invigorated the city's regrowth. For so many years, you know, you, you sort of struggle little by little and little by little, and then eventually it starts to snowball. And now the snowball is <clears throat> to the point where you, we, you know, the, the big job is to keep up with it <laughs> instead of <laughs> trying to keep pushing it up the hill. 
A pub project received around $3 million in DRI and Restore NY grant funds to renovate the carriage house on Main Street. $1.2 million in grant funding has gone toward the construction of 75 modern housing units designed for the anticipated growth in the city's artist population across the street from City Hall. The largest of the projects is also closest to the core of DeSantis's vision for a thriving art scene, a $4 million renovation of the city's historic Glove Theater. Kathleen Parrott is the president of the Glove Theater Board of Directors. We're going to be expanding our capacity. We're going to be beautifying our space. Um, we're going to be making the theater proper as well as the balcony more accessible. Restoring the balcony will add an additional 250 seats to our venue. And that additional capacity plus the beautification project will enable us to um, to bring in new and enhanced programming and to expand our audience. Around $450,000 of the DRI grant is going toward a dilapidated, empty lot on South Main Street. For DeSantis, it's a field of dreams. The owners of the buildings that, that back onto this are excited about doing something with the back of those buildings. Jason Ashley is going to be doing something here with a cafe and... Um, you know, a, a space outdoors to overlook whatever performances are going on back there. So we could show outdoor movies here. We could have, you know, Shakespeare in the park. We could have, uh, um, you know, musical performances. While things are looking up now, DeSantis says it wasn't easy to get everyone on board. In the beginning, there was a lot of pessimism because, because what we were trying to do and what we were trying to convince people is that we can build a new city. We can build a new Gloversville. And, and originally, people didn't believe it. That has changed now, amazingly. There's a critical mass of people that now, uh, because of the successes that we've been able to chalk up, really believe that we're going to do this. Uh, I've had people say, I've never been more optimistic about Gloversville in my life. Timelines on projects vary, with green spaces slated to be completed by fall 2024 and the construction of the Glove City lofts estimated to be completed by 2025. Reporting for the Southern Adirondack Bureau on the campus of Skidmore College, this is Aaron Shallow-Levine. And that about does it for this week's show. The Legislative Gazette is a production of WAMC Northeast Public Radio. We had help from the New York State Public News Network. You can listen to the Legislative Gazette anytime at wamcpodcast.org or anywhere you get your podcasts. Look for program number 2408. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org.